Hello, this is Tim Conboy, the pastor of New Life Community Church located in Nashville, Indiana. I'd like to thank you for visiting our podcast, and I trust that God will just bless you and encourage you and speak to your heart as you listen to this message. Thank you again for joining us, and God bless you. All right. See you later, kids. I like that. I think uh, I can't find a, a better reason than that to bring somebody to church on Easter than you don't really like them very much. <laughs> and you want to find a better reason to like them? That's great. I, I'm all for that. Okay. Shalom. Shalom. All right. Let's try that one more time with a little more, mm, you know. Shalom. Shalom. All right. Now a good Jewish boy feels at home. <laughs> this is great. All right, it's my joy to be back with you. I was here one year ago to present Christ in the Passover. How many of you were here for that? All right, a good number of you. So we're not going to get too much into that, but we are going to look at all of the feasts of Israel today. We're going to look at what we call the gospel in the feasts of Israel. So it's going to be kind of an overview about every single feast and how it points to Jesus, because it's not just the Passover that was fulfilled by Jesus, it's every feast in the book of Leviticus. So, you know, sometimes I tell people that I work with Jews for Jesus, and they look at me weird. You might have heard me say this before, they kind of say, that kind of sounds like you said vegans for bacon, right? <laughs> Jews for Jesus, but I'm sure most of you know better, right? Jesus and all of his disciples were Jewish, and all the writers of the New Testament with the exception of Luke, were also Jewish, and we know that Luke was a doctor, so who knows? Maybe he was Jewish too. Because when you're growing up in a Jewish household, that's one of the only available professions for you, right? We say it's, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can be a failure. So, uh, so that's kind of where I ended up on the spectrum, I guess. I'm neither of those things. But anyway, in the first century, being Jewish and believing in Jesus, it wasn't so strange, right? All of the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, so when the first Gentile or non-Jewish person wanted to believe in the Messiah, we had a few problems, right? There was so much uproar about this thing that we had to hold the first church council in Acts chapter 15, which I understand you guys just looked at recently. The subject of this whole council, a bunch of Jewish guys thinking about what are we going to do with all these Gentiles for Jesus, right? <laughs> but we found out it was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. God does not have a plan B. He was always about bringing the nations in, first through the nation of Israel and ultimately through the Messiah of Israel, because we know that the tides have turned quite a bit, and now there's a whole lot more Gentiles for Jesus than there are Jews for Jesus, but even that was part of God's plan. So, in Jews for Jesus, we make it our mission to tell our fellow Jewish brothers and sisters about the gospel. And what better way to do that than to point back to the very feasts of Israel that God designed to set up to be a fulfillment of biblical prophecy so that Jesus comes on the scene and talks about the very things that Israel has been celebrating and that the Jewish people still celebrate not understanding that Jesus fulfills them. So as we look at this today, it's my hope that not only will you want to know more about the biblical feasts and look at them yourselves in your own time, but that you will be motivated to pray for my people who do not accept that the feasts are fulfilled 
in Jesus. And that the whole Old Testament meets its fulfillment in Jesus. Because every promise of God is yes and amen in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So, I hope that you'll be inspired to have confidence in the promises and the character of God. Because we can trust him because his plan of redemption dates back before the foundation of the world. And when he was planning out his grand tapestry of redemption, he was thinking of you. So I hope that you will have that confidence. So to begin our time together, I hope that you will turn with me to the book of Leviticus. If you know where that is, it's the third book in the Bible. I'm not, I'm not how, sure how much time you've spent studying the book of Leviticus here before. Pastor Tim, how many times do you turn to the book of Leviticus Oh, awesome. So you guys might, this might be old news for you, but you know, for some people, if you've ever done a, read the Bible through a year, right, and you get through Genesis and Exodus, and it's really awesome, there's all this adventure, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh, (laughs) how long is this one again, right? So it's my hope that you'll see from understanding the biblical feasts, why this book of the Bible is so important, because The book of Leviticus is all about holiness. And we see that purpose when we look at Exodus chapter 19, when God says to Israel at Mount Sinai, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is crucial. God explains... That the way Israel is to fulfill its destiny to be a blessing to the nations was by being a whole nation of priests. God is calling Israel to mediate the blessing of his presence to the world, to be his ambassadors to the nations. So that when other nations interacted with Israel, they were supposed to recognize God's blessing on them, to be drawn into a relationship with the God of Israel. So we see that the purpose of Leviticus and all of the other commandments in the law were about holiness, to set Israel apart, to make them stick out among all the other nations so that everyone would see how weird they look, right? They don't eat certain foods. Why? Because God commanded them to look different. They don't mix the fibers of their clothing. That looked probably pretty weird, right? And on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, everything shuts down. No other nation does that. And they care for the poor and the oppressed. And they value justice. And so the other nations are supposed to see these rhythms of the nation of Israel and see that they are holy and recognize that they are different and attractive because of the God of Israel. And the most important rhythm of these were the feasts of Israel. So a good way to think about the feasts of Israel in the book of Leviticus is kind of like school. All right? So... Everyone knows you go to school and you have, you know, sorry teachers, the boring part, that's the classroom, right? (laughs) And then you have field trips, right? Who doesn't like a good field trip? I know I do. So you have the boring stuff in the class and then the field trip is supposed to be the time when you put all that stuff into practice. All the stuff that you're learning in the classroom becomes Sensory, You get to touch and see and smell and taste it. And that's what the feasts of Israel were like. All of these commandments were pointing to these annual celebrations when all of the people of Israel would stop everything and focus their attention on God. So 
Leviticus chapter 23 is where we're going to camp out. And we're going to be referring to a whole bunch of other Bible passages that will all be on the screen. So don't feel like you have to flip there. They'll be on the screen, but we're going to camp out in Leviticus. And it says in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. The word for feast in Hebrew is moed, which means appointed time. And it's a time for Israel, like we said, to drop everything and focus their attention on God, on who he is, on what he has done. So the first of these appointed times is called the Shabbat. It's the Sabbath, a day of rest. And that one is weekly. And it would remind uh, Israel of God's covenant with them and of the creation of the world and how God rested. But the other feasts in Leviticus 23, the other seven feasts, are annual. So they only happen once a year, and they divide into two distinct groups. The first four feasts are in the springtime, and they're all related to the Passover, which is just Monday night. So August or April 10th is the first night of Passover. And then the last three feasts on the calendar happen in the seventh month of the year, known as the month of Tishri, which is usually around September or October on our calendar. And these fall feasts take place during the seventh month. They are known as the fall feasts of Israel. So we're going to look at how all of these feasts were celebrated by Israel, but more importantly, how Lord Jesus fulfills them. And so in this regard, the whole calendar of Israel's celebrations is organized prophetically. And that means that the four feasts, the ones related to the Passover in the spring, they were all fulfilled already. They were fulfilled during Jesus' life and ministry on the earth. The fall feasts that we're going to look at will be fulfilled when he returns. Like I said, God has no plan B. This was no accident when he set it up this way. So now we live in this time in between promise and fulfillment like a bride looking forward to her wedding day, the time in between the promise and when it is fulfilled. God's blessings and fulfillment of his promises has begun, but will ultimately be fulfilled at his return. So I hope that as we look at these you know, Jewish celebrations and all of this ritualistic stuff, that you will be encouraged to hope in the blessing that we have in him now and the glory that awaits us at his return in the future, all right? So, we're going to take a quick look at the Passover, which starts in verse 4. In the first month, and on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So we're not going to look too much into this one because if you were here last year, I went all the way into it. And there's a whole lot of symbolism in this festival. But what's important is that we remember that the Passover is the textbook example of God's redemption for the nation of Israel. Whenever Israel lost its way in the Old Testament, the whole books of the prophets is all about reminding Israel 
of the redemption that they experienced when God brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus. In fact, the whole calendar of Israel is organized around that fact, that they have been redeemed. The new year for them actually happens in September. It's kind of like the civil new year, like our January. But when God redeemed the people of Israel, he said, this is how you organize your life now. The first feast of the year is the Passover because he wants them to remember every year what he did for them. So the nation was born again as free through the waters of the Red Sea as God delivered them from Egypt. And so today in Jewish homes, we, when we celebrate Passover, it's with this elaborate feast called a Seder. And Seder is a Hebrew word that means order because there's an ancient order of service that we follow in the Passover, this big elaborate meal. And at some point in the Seder, there's a little kid who comes to the, to the head of the household and asks four questions which uncover the meaning of Passover. And the kid says, which means, <laughs> why is this night different from all other nights? And if you're a kid and you're being honest when you say that, it sounds more like, why are we doing this again? <laughs> this is really boring. I know that's what I was thinking of when I was a kid. When are we going to eat? Right? That's the only thing you want to know. But the importance of the four questions is to uncover the meaning of Passover. So those of us at the table who know the story, we respond to the child's question by telling the story. We say, this is because of what God did for me when he brought me out of Egypt, when he redeemed me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's the story. Redemption is the heart of Passover. And we understand that it's more than just the message of God's redemption, but Passover and the celebration of Passover communicates the mechanism of God's redemption. And that is the blood of the Passover lamb, right? My ancestors in Egypt took this spotless lamb and roasted it without breaking its bones and then applied the blood of this lamb to the doorposts of their homes in Egypt, the top and the two side posts. And because of their faith in God and in the effectiveness of this provision of the lamb, they were spared the wrath of the 10th plague that fell in the land of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. When God saw the blood on their door, death was forced to pass over. In Hebrew, we say Pesach. Can we say that together? Pesach. Okay, don't look at the person next to you when you say the second part of the word. I'm just trying to protect you, okay? But Pesach is the holiday that commemorates the death that passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt, which points us to God's redemption. And it's mighty in and of itself, but it's a picture of an even greater redemption through the blood of another Passover lamb who we know as Jesus, right? Just as none of the bones of that first Passover lamb in Egypt were to be broken, the Apostle John tells us that none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death, that excruciating death that we heard about as we took communion. And just as my ancestors were instructed to put that blood upon their doors in faith, each one of us must apply the blood of Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. Amen? Amen. All right. So Passover also begins this other feast called unleavened bread, and that's seven days long. So during Passover and through the feast of unleavened bread, 
We don't eat leaven at all, which means, you know, yeast and the stuff that turns into cake and cookies and all of that good stuff and hostess Twinkies and whatever else you can... Probably shouldn't be eating that anyway, though, but I'm not going to judge you. All right. But during that time, the, the bread of affliction, as it's called, matzah, unleavened bread, is used to celebrate Passover. And it comes in this thing called a matzah tash, which contains three layers of unleavened bread separated by cloth. And the head of the household removes the middle layer of the matzah. And he says, this is the bread of affliction, which our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. So not only is it unleavened to describe that it's a, a sign of sinless nature, because leaven was used to represent sin in the Bible, but this was also the bread that our ancestors had to eat when they were fleeing Egypt because they couldn't wait for their bread to rise. So it's not called the bread of affliction because it's disgusting. It's not. <laughs> it's actually pretty good, and it's gluten-free, so there you go. But the head of the household raises it and says a blessing. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem mina aretz. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So then he breaks it and puts one half aside, and the other half is called the afikomen, which is a Greek word meaning that which comes later. And that's what happens. We take this part of the bread and we put it in a linen pouch, and it's hidden from everyone at the table, and no one is supposed to know where it's been hidden because later all of the kids go looking for it, and whoever finds it gets a prize. So after the meal, all the kids run around, and I never found it, which I'm kind of bitter about. You know, 12 years of looking. So, yeah. Let me take a second. Okay, not bitter anymore. All right. And then it's found, and it's removed from its linen pouch, and it's shown to everyone at the table, and then we take smaller pieces of it along with what's called the cup of redemption. Now, does this look familiar? <laughs> All right. So this is where Jesus, at his Passover Seder, the last supper in the upper room, took the broken piece of afikomen and the third cup, the cup of redemption, the cup taken after the meal, and said, this is my body and this is my blood. So, right, the afikomen, which is broken, buried, and brought back, which speaks of Jesus, the unleavened nature, which is a sinless nature, and it has been pierced just like Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. And it comes from this threefold pouch, which actually represents the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the middle one was broken, buried, and brought back. A fact which the rabbis fail to acknowledge when they say it represents the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That one is not explained by the middle one being broken, buried, and brought back. So we see a picture of Jesus in all of these things. But like I said, we're not going to spend too much time on the Passover. If you want, have any more questions about that, you can ask me afterwards. We also have a book about it. So let's move on to the second feast on the calendar, or rather the third, because the first two are Passover and unleavened bread. The third one is called First Fruits. All right? So we find that in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. 
On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. What does that mean? <laughs> Why are we waving sheaves? What's a sheaf? Does anyone know what a sheaf is? I don't know. Anyway, we have to understand this by looking to the fact that Israel was an agricultural society. It was an agrarian society. So all of the feasts that God commanded them to celebrate were organized around harvests and all of these grains that they would have been harvesting. So the Bible shows that Israel could be the best farmers in the world, the best you know, soldiers in the land, and the best looking people, which maybe they were, who knows. But if they didn't obey God's law, forget about it. They lost all their prosperity. But they could also be the worst farmers in the world, the worst soldiers and downright ugly. And if they obeyed God's commandments, they would be the most prosperous nation. And that's what being a holy nation was all about. It didn't matter in terms of their abilities. God provides for his people, right? So the first fruits harvest is a barley harvest. So they're waving these sheaves of barley in the air to represent that they're thankful for God's provision and they're giving it all back to him. So first fruits is the barley harvest, and then later is the wheat harvest, and then there's a break in the summer, and then there's grapes and olives in the fall. So that's how it was kind of organized. But this one, first fruits, was celebrated the day after the Sabbath that follows the Passover. So they would celebrate Passover, and then there would be a Sabbath, and then the day after that they'd celebrate first fruits. So imagine you celebrate Passover on a Thursday, and then Saturday is the Sabbath, and then you'd celebrate first fruits on the Sunday. All right, so. What happened Sunday morning after Passover 2,000 years ago? Jesus came back from the dead, all right? So this was no accident or coincidence that Jesus was raised on the Feast of first fruits. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So if Christ is the firstfruits of the resurrection and we have been born again in him, what does that make us? The book of James tells us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this biblical feast about waving barley in the air becomes about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead being offered as the first, a promise of what is later to come. So we know that because Jesus was raised from the dead, we too can put our hope in him that when he returns, we also will be raised. So let's move from there to the feast known as Shavuot. All right, Shavuot, the feast of weeks, which starts in verse 16. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, 
and baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. So another first fruits offering, but this one is the wheat harvest. And it happens seven full weeks or seven Sabbaths after first fruits. So you have to count seven Sabbaths, which is 49 plus one. So 50 days, 50 penta. This is Pentecost, all right? So 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits is Pentecost, which is Shavuot in Hebrew. Shavuot means weeks. And this time is called the counting of the Omer. You count one day every day for 50 days. And the Jewish community celebrates this today, but they don't celebrate it as an agricultural festival because they're not living all in the land of Israel and we don't have the temple that's standing, so we can't celebrate it that way. So they celebrate it as the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And this they counted kind of like 50 days after the exodus from Egypt. And they kind of estimated that they would have been at Mount Sinai. So it's celebrated as the giving of the law. And that's how it was celebrated for a long time. So it became about revelation and community. Because it was on Sinai that God revealed his law to his people. And a community was created. So what else happened on Shavuot about 2,000 years ago that did the same thing? The giving of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, right? Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Kind of sounds like Sinai. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, this is a fulfillment of that giving of the law. It was the giving of the Spirit. Jesus was resurrected on first fruits, right? And then he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and stuff like that. And then he left them alone, and they were freaking out for 10 days in Jerusalem when he told them to wait for the coming of the Spirit. 40 plus 10 is 50. So they're on Pentecost, and this crazy rushing wind fills the room, and all of the tongues of fire fall on them. So, in the same way that you can't celebrate Pentecost without celebrating Passover and first fruits, because you won't know when to count, you can't experience the power and the presence of God's spirit without experiencing the power of the cross and the empty tomb, the redemption and the resurrection of Messiah Jesus. So even within something so kind of mundane as agricultural cycles and stuff, God is giving a picture of his redemptive plan. So 2,000 years ago, God fulfilled that promise and the Spirit of God came. The anniversary of the law coming at Mount Sinai, God wrote the law on the hearts of his people and created this new covenant community. Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when we walk by God's Spirit, we fulfill the law. And that was what God did 
when he gave his spirit on Pentecost. He gave us the ability to fulfill his law. So, you remember that I said the calendar of Israel's feasts is organized prophetically. So the first four that we just looked at in the spring were all fulfilled during Jesus' life on earth. And now you have a basic idea of how. His sacrifice during Passover, his resurrection on the Feast of First Fruits, and the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. So, after the spring feast is a time without any major celebration for a few months. So to create a sense of realistic tension, we're going to take a break so I can tell you a little bit more about the ministry of Jews for Jesus. So if you got one of these cards in your bulletin, all right, you can feel free to rip this. And if you want to know more about the ministry of Jews for Jesus and get our free monthly newsletter, which I have here and some copies in the back, you can fill this out. And you'll also get in the mail a little booklet that we have called A Roadmap to Christ and the Seven Feasts. So if you forget about anything that we said here today and you want to know more about it, how, it, how Jesus fulfills all of the seven feasts, it's a cool kind of handy little booklet, and you'll get sent that in the mail. But Jews for Jesus, our mission statement is that we exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue for our Jewish people worldwide. Now, why would we say it so confrontationally? If you haven't noticed, Jewish people are pretty good at avoiding this issue. How many of you have noticed that, right? Okay, so we say it that way, but what we really do is we don't like shove the message in people's faces. We create space for God to work. It's God who changes hearts. And we create space to have the conversation about Messiah with Jewish people in a way that they can understand. And you guys do this too. Every time you share your faith with somebody, every time you open the Bible and offer to pray for somebody, you are creating space for the Holy Spirit to work through you because God calls us ambassadors. We are his ambassadors for his kingdom. So where I do that is in Los Angeles where my family and I live and there's the, the second highest population of Jewish people in the country. There's a picture of my family. My wife, Shana, my daughter, Nora, and our son, Levi. And there are 850,000 Jewish people in Los Angeles, which is more Jewish people than live in the city of Jerusalem today, if you can believe it. So it's a great opportunity to share. And I want to tell you about one guy that I just met just a few weeks ago. This really fresh kind of relationship that's being formed. This guy, Dan, was kicked out of Jewish seminary in Jerusalem years ago because he came out and when he came out he started getting interested in jesus and nobody will talk to him about this so he emailed me and so we've been getting together for coffee and talking about how, everything that we're talking about today how jesus fulfills the calendar of israel and he's been opening up so if you remember to pray for dan i would i would love for you to fill this little thing out stick it in your bible write dan's name down there and we can stay in touch, and I'll keep you updated on what God is doing in his life. But if you get our monthly newsletter, you'll get more stories about people like Dan and others who have come to faith in Jesus. And also, you'll get connected with our ministry in Israel, which is our largest branch of Jews for Jesus. And it's where I first started serving with Jews for Jesus when I would go to Israel and then travel to India to reach Israeli backpackers. Because that's a thing. I didn't know if you know that was a thing. But it is. 
So, Israeli backpackers travel to India after their army service, and they're more open to the gospel there than in the land of Israel. So, pray for that, pray for Dan, and also you can check out our table with the not-so-free side of things. If you want more information about some of the feasts, there's some books and stuff like that, I'd be happy to show you more about that. But, that's enough realistic tension for today. We're moving for the, to the fall feasts, which I said will be fulfilled when Jesus ultimately returns. And the first one is called Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets. But Rosh Hashanah means the beginning of the year. So the feast kind of changed throughout the time that Israel was in the land. The first introduction that we have is in Leviticus 23, verse 23, when it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. So it's just described as a day of rest, a Sabbath, where you offer something on the altar and you blow a trumpet. Yom Truah, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the trumpet that it's talking about is not exactly like the one you'd hear Louis Armstrong playing or something. It's actually called a shofar, and it's this, made out of a ram's horn. So, something like that, right? That's, that's how it happened. And the shofar was used during Israel's history to call them to attention. And I'm not going to do that right now because it would sound pretty pathetic, I'm not very good at this, but if we have any trumpet players here, you can feel free to try your luck afterwards. But it was used to call the nation of Israel to attention. And the ram's horn reminds the Jewish people of God's faithfulness to Abraham. Because remember, a ram was provided instead of Abraham having to sacrifice Isaac's son. So during Rosh Hashanah every year, we read this passage of the Bible. So it's also a time that I regret being named Isaac because I get a bunch of jokes about being sacrificed by my dad, which is always great. Um, but Rosh Hashanah, the, the Feast of Trumpets, was more intimately connected to the feast that came after it because the blowing of the trumpet was all about calling Israel to attention that they only have 10 days to repent before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So during these 10 days... In Jewish tradition, God opens the book of life. And every Jewish observant person is hoping that God writes their name in the book of life as a result of repentance during these 10 days, called the Days of Awe. And so Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are actually called the High Holy Days on the Jewish calendar. So even Jewish people who don't consider themselves particularly religious will show up at synagogue on these days, which is kind of like Easter, right? <laughs> so everyone kind of comes out of the woodworks and you're like, oh, I haven't seen them in a while. So that's kind of what it's like in the Jewish community. But as I said, the Feast of Trumpets is not just about repentance. It's also about regathering. And the prophet Zechariah shows us how that was connected ultimately in Israel's history when Israel would be regathered to the land by the shofar. It says, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. 
I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children live in return. So, this is the hope of Rosh Hashanah. Remember, while Jesus' coming fulfilled all of the spring feasts, his ministry only begins the fulfillment of the fall feasts that we're looking at now. So the days of awe, these ten days that started with the shofar blast, is kind of like Jesus' ministry when he came and said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That call to repentance, because Jesus' first coming was not about judgment. It was about calling people to repentance. He came to save, not to judge, as the book of John says. But Jesus also foretold a time when he would return as a judge, and he would fulfill this hope of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, and regather his people. And he says this in Matthew 24. He says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And this continues to be the hope of Jewish people who are religious everywhere, that when Messiah comes, he'll regather all of the exiles and restore the people. But what they do not accept is that Messiah already has come once to deal with sin. And he is coming again in judgment, not only of the nations, but of the Jewish people as well. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the return of Jesus with the shofar blast will also initiate the resurrection, the ultimate regathering. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And this is our hope, that when God whistles for his people, the trumpet call to regather his people, at this time, when he opens the book of life, the only way to ensure that your name is written in it is by faith in the Messiah. So then, you have ten days after Rosh Hashanah, and then you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Hebrew calendar. And it speaks of God's redemption and reconciliation. And the Day of Atonement is the single day of the year in the nation of Israel when anybody was allowed into what's known as the Holy of Holies, right? It's this innermost part of the temple. And we're told that the high priest would enter the most holy place as a representative of all of Israel with the blood of an animal sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And so to accomplish this, he was required to put the blood of this animal on a mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies. And when he came out, all of the people would rejoice because they knew this meant God had forgiven their sins. So the priest would also have this rope tied around his waist when he went inside the Holy of Holies in case the sacrifice was not accepted, because who would want to go in there after him? <laughs> I know I would not. So, what does this have to do with Jesus at all? Well, Jesus died 
40 years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It happened in 70 AD. And after that, it wouldn't be possible to offer this sacrifice anymore, according to this custom. So 2,000 years ago, he provided this atonement with his blood. His blood stained the mercy seat of heaven. And when Jesus died, it said that the veil separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom, which represents the access that we have to God because of his death. Just as the book of Hebrews says, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. So these sacrifices that were offered year after year were not effective to atone for sin. Only Jesus, our spotless lamb, was effective. He is also our high priest who went into the Holy of Holies by his sacrifice and was resurrected three days later displaying that God had indeed accepted the sacrifice. He was victorious over sin and death, and we have nothing to fear. God accepted the sacrifice. So when we celebrate Easter in a matter of days, I hope you remember Jesus, the high priest, who emerged victorious over death. So even when Jesus' death on the cross perfectly atoned for all of our sins, the story is not over. He will return... And when he does, he returns as the judge of all the earth. And the day of atonement will finally be fulfilled. And Zechariah again tells us of this day. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And it's told by Paul that on this day, all Israel will be saved. When Jesus returns, those of my Jewish people who rejected his atoning sacrifice will recognize him as Messiah and turn to him. And we will be with the Lord. And that's what the last feast is about. It's all about God's presence. It's called Sukkot. All right. The last of the fall feasts is called Sukkot in Hebrew, otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, it's sometimes called. So during this feast, the people of Israel were commanded to remember and to rejoice. They were commanded to remember the provision that God gave them while they were wandering around in the wilderness and they didn't have a home. So what we do is we build these uh, temporary dwellings made out of like sticks and leaves and stuff like that outside of our house, and we're commanded to live in these things for seven days. And this is about as close as Jewish people get to camping anymore, right? <laughs> 40 years in the wilderness was enough for us. Okay, but Sukkot kind of became known as a symbol of God's presence, not just a temporary dwelling place, but a symbol of God's presence with his people in the Sukkah, this tabernacle. And by the time of the first century, this feast was so significant that everybody in Israel came to Jerusalem for the feast. Millions of people. It was a pilgrimage festival. And during this time, when the temple was still standing, they had two celebrations. One is called a water offering ceremony, and the other one was 
the lampstand lighting ceremony. And so for the water offering ceremony, what happened was that the high priest would take this golden pitcher and there would be this large processional of people down to the pool of Siloam, which was this pool of water below the temple. So think of it more like Mardi Gras, right? Than like a worship service, okay? So the rabbis tell us in the Talmud that millions of people would parade down to this pool and there would be rabbis dancing on their hands and like juggling fire and knives and stuff like, imagine rabbis juggling knives, okay? And you have a good picture of what this was like. So all these people are going down to this pool and singing from Isaiah chapter 12, Behold, God is my salvation. With joy we will draw water for the wells of salvation. And they go back to the temple and they pour this water on the altar because it's a prayer to God to provide the rain for the harvest. And we know that Jesus celebrated this feast while he was with us on the earth. And in John chapter 7, it looks like he's not going to go because the Jewish leaders are looking to arrest him. But then, later in the chapter, we see him right there in the middle of all of this stuff going on. In the middle of this crazy parade with rabbis juggling knives, Jesus stands up on the last and greatest day of the feast, John 7. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So you have to imagine this. It's crazy. Jesus and all of the men of Israel are at this feast watching the high priest pour water down on the altar, and he chooses this particular moment to stand up and say, if you're really looking for God's provision, if you really want God's presence, here I am. Come to me. I can give you water that will quench your souls. And in case we didn't understand what he meant, John tells us he's talking about the Spirit of God. Those of us who have the Spirit of God, who have placed our faith in Messiah, we know what it's like to have the well of life flowing from within us, the very presence of God within us. Jesus is the one who quenches our thirst. And that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. It's all about God dwelling with his people. It's just like John said at the beginning of the book. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But just as we've seen with the other two fall feasts, this one has not yet been fulfilled, right? We experience the blessing of God's presence now through the Holy Spirit, but we do not live in God's presence every day. We are still separated from him. But the day is coming when we will no longer be separated from his presence, but dwell with him forever. John says in Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That is our hope, brothers and sisters. When God's presence dwells with his people again, he makes his tabernacle with his creation and all the sad things come untrue. The glorious plan of God who declares the end from the beginning 
who determines all the times and the seasons and who orders every step of our lives. We can trust him. Amen? He has no plan B. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you determine the steps of our lives. And when you had this plan of redemption before the foundation of the world, you saw us. And Jesus, when you went to the cross for our sins, it was for the joy that was set before you, you were thinking of us. And you longed for the day that you could be restored and be with us once again. Lord, we long for that day too. We long to be in your presence. We have your Holy Spirit, Lord, but your spirit groans within us, Lord, and we long for the restoration of all things. Would you give us hope when we experience pain now? Would you give us hope that one day you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Stand with me. Our ministry team's going to come. And also, our ushers are going to come. We'd like to take a love offering for Isaac and for Jesus. Jesus. So, you just prepare yourself for that. Maybe God's also just speaking to your heart about a need in your life. Maybe you just need prayer. So the ministry team is coming. They'll be here to pray for you. You need healing. You need help. You need